Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Congress has moved to avert a government shutdown, but it's only a temporary spending measure as the Pentagon is funded by a continuing resolution as the National Defense Authorization Act remains a hostage and negotiations to raise the borrowing limit loom. This, as all of official Washington, flows out to California to the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library and Museum uh, for the annual Reagan National Defense Forum this year brought to you in person. I should say not say annually because last year, sadly, the event was skipped. Uh, All of this as China continues to ratchet up tensions in the Pacific as the Biden administration continues to work on its key national security and national defense strategies, publicly discussing but not detailing its global force posture review. Joining us to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, and somebody who made uh, the list of top lobbyists in the Hill. Congratulations, Michael. Uh, Well done. Retired United States Navy Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, uh, who uh, served at U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, but now is the Executive Director of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. He is also affiliated with the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, uh, and Dr. Dove Zach former Pentagon comptroller, who is now, uh, among his many associations, counts uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies as one of his homes. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And check out our two new podcasts, the Downlink podcast with our very own contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a deep and thoughtful dive into all things space each week and our Cavus Ships podcast with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who talk about all things uh, naval. Gentlemen, thanks very much for joining us. All right, Michael, a mayhem of a budget week. There's a lot of stuff uh, that happened. Obviously, the United States government's not shutting down, but we still have, have the NDAA that's in play. Debt limit, uh, uh, you know, the debt limit has to be raised uh, next year. W- walk us through what happened, the aftermath. What does it mean? Because Build Back Better is also on the agenda, right? Walk us through what happened in the last 24 or so hours uh, where we uh, averted semi-catastrophe, but are still continuing to fund the Pentagon on a continuing resolution. And the concern is that with each passing week, this becomes a full year CR. No, you're right. So let's start with uh, where we are with the National Defense Authorization Act. As you know, the House bill has been passed for quite some time. uh, And in the Senate, it's been delayed, mostly because uh, the Senate Majority Leader has been hesitant to take the bill up in favor of other Senate items. Uh, But finally, the bill has started to move, but it's been a bunch of start and stops. And they have not had a, any, any procedural votes on NDAA since uh, Monday of this week. Uh, and it looked like it was going to get done by the end of the week. And then on Thursday, uh, they hit a roadblock uh, on the agreement to amendments when Senator Rubio uh, dug in on his demand that his Uyghur forced labor bill, which is a bill that passed the Senate earlier this year, be attached to the NDAA. Uh, Democrats said no, they don't want to put that on. And the House, Demo- and House Democrats, especially, you know, because it, it all this apparently raises revenue, this bill, and all bills that raise revenue have to start in the House. Uh, Rubio is not accepting that, so right now we're at a stalemate in the Senate. In addition to that, 
Senator Lankford wants a, a, a vote on his amendment, which would prevent the Pentagon from withholding pay to National Guard troops in Oklahoma who refuse to take the coronavirus vaccine. So despite that holdup in the Senate, uh, the um, leaders on the committee, the ranking member and the chairman of both House and Senate Armed Services Committees have been meeting to negotiate a conference report. Uh, now, now, technically, they're not calling it a conference report since there is no Senate bill, uh, technically the conference, so they're calling it the compromise bill. So if the Senate is unable to get their bill passed off the floor, they will pick up what is technically a conference report and pass it through the House and the Senate. And the goal is hopefully to get it done next week. Now, there still are things that could stop it from happening, because since it is a piece of legislation that will move, there is still talk of attaching things onto that legislation, like the debt ceiling uh, that you mentioned earlier. Uh, I'm, well, I think a lot of us are hoping that's not the case, because I think if they do attach the debt ceiling on, it will be very hard to get that through the House of Representatives. At the same time, there's a school of thought among Republicans that Secretary Yellen is bluffing that December 15th really isn't the real deadline uh, for the debt ceiling, that we could buy time until January. So this is going to be a very interesting game of chicken over the next less than two weeks to see what they, if anything, they decide to do on the debt ceiling. So, so now, how does all, so how does all of that, just briefly, how does all that play out then in, in your estimation? So my estimation, I think in the end, they will not put the debt ceiling on NDAA because that really is a killer in the House, because that gives a lot of Republicans an excuse to vote against the bill. And they need Republican votes to pass the bill because there are a substantial number of Democrats that will oppose the NDAA just because they oppose defense spending and will not be supportive of the additional $25 billion increase in defense spending. I mean, as you remember earlier this year, about 100 uh, progressives uh, sent a letter, not 100, about 50 progressive Democrats sent a letter to the president asking him to cut defense spending. Uh, so this, the, the, so those are p- folks are unlikely to vote for the bill. So they would need at least 75 to 100 Republicans to vote for the bill. And that would be difficult if the debt ceiling were on it. So, you know, I, I still don't believe that Democrats are going to use one of their reconciliation vehicles uh, to, to pass it. So, uh, you know, when I, I, I'm talking to people every day about this and nobody seems to know <laughs> what the end game is. Uh, so, uh, it's a dangerous game, uh, but it's going to play out for at least another week and a half. All right. Uh, two other hot topics, obviously. Uh, g- growing concerns that there is going to be a full year uh, CR, 2-2, uh, and, then, <laughs> and then also build back better. Walk us through both of those. Sure. Well, first, I'll say, don't say full year CR. We don't want to put that out there on the atmosphere. Every time people talk about it, like, no, uh, we have to have a can-do attitude, not a can't-do attitude. But there is legitimate uh, fear about that. And I'll say, you know, as much as we averted a shutdown this week, There was some legitimate concern uh, as late as Wednesday night when I was talking to leadership staff and appropriation staff that there was still no agreement on the length of the CR or the contents of the CR. And they came to an agreement early Thursday morning. The House filed their their CR, but notably uh, is the absence of anomalies. Uh, And this is uh, on there on purpose. Rosa DeLauro insisted on that to cause some pain to build pressure for an omnibus. So this CR goes through December, goes through February 18th, but it, it does not give the military any added budget flexibility to start new programs or ramp up existing ones. And that is very significant because the, the mantra here is going to be this. If we want to keep up with China and we want to or catch up with China, this slows us down. This locks us in place. China wins with these CRs. Uh, and there was some doubt in the Senate for a little while because there were conservative senators who were insisting uh, that there be a vote on an amendment to strip the funding for the vaccine mandates for the private sector. Uh, if then there was no vote on that amendment, they would not uh, support the CR. So they did grant them the vote, the amendment failed, the CR passed, 
and we did uh, avert a shutdown. But uh, right now, there are no discussions uh, between Democrats and Republicans about uh, an omnibus package. I mean, and the, the, the Republicans are very concerned that the non-defense domestic discretionary increase is too high, that in that bill, it's 13% growth. Whereas for defense, if we get the extra defense money, it'd be 5%. And that imbalance is too great, especially when you take into consideration uh, the fact that the, they passed the American Rescue Plan earlier this year at $1.9 trillion, the bipartisan infrastructure bill at $1.2 trillion, and possibly a Build Back Better uh, plan at about $1.75 trillion. So that's a dramatic imbalance of non-defense domestic discretionary against uh, defense. So Republicans are insisting on changes to that. And uh, you and uh, we're going to get on with the rest of the show. Everybody's been very patient, but it's been an action packed budget week, obviously. Uh, and very quickly on Build Back Better, uh, your sense on how this is going to unfold. Right. I mean, Democrats are convinced this package is going to be key uh, to uh, their retaining the House, even though uh, there is a lot of skepticism about it. Right. I mean, some of these things are popular, but Democrats may not actually get any credit for it. Uh, and in fact, right, I mean, the economy in many respects is better than anybody could have imagined, uh, right? I mean, it's it's actually running into problems because it is red hot. Walk us through where we are on Build Back Better. I think Build Back Better has, has lost a lot of momentum. Uh, and I, you know, the Democrats still uh, plan to get it done by Christmas. But uh, today, uh, Senator Cinema came out and said what Manchin had said earlier, that this was probably going to have to wait until next year. Uh, so even though Schumer is still hoping to get a vote on the bill before Christmas, uh, he needs every senator on board, and he does not have them all on board right now. And we don't even know what the Senate bill is even going to look like, because the bill that passed the House is not what's going to pass the Senate. And I do think that the Democrats, even though they think this is going to help them, you know, it's, the bill's over 2,000 pages long, and most of them have not read it. And the, the more that comes out about the bill, the more things that are problematic that can be used against them. You know, for example, you, know, you get a tax credit for buying an electric vehicle only if it's made by union labor. Well, I mean, all of a sudden, how does he, why does the environment care about whether something's made by union labor or not made by union labor? And I think the more people look at the bill, the more things there will be that they can hang around the Democrats, and it makes it more, more complicated. And, and which I think is why Cinema and Manchin want to take a more thoughtful approach so we understand what it is we're voting on, what it is they're passing, and what it is you know, they're getting into. And I think, that, as I mentioned before, a lot of senators that feel the same way, they just don't want to say so publicly. Mark, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, as the executive director of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, you not only track uh, things uh, that are uh, up there on the hill that are cyber related, but also uh, strategic and, and Pacific related as well. And you've been kind enough to join us uh, to talk about the Pacific Defense Initiative, um, among uh, other things. But talk to us about the Global Force Posture Review and what you made, out, uh, made of it. And I want to kind of go around the horn uh, with with everybody, because I know, uh, Dove, uh, you've got a piece out in the Hill uh, today on it. And, and Patrick, I know uh, that you've been tracking this uh, closely uh, as well. Mark, take it away. Hey, thank you, Vago, and, and thanks for inviting me. Um, you know, my initial take is it's hard to have a solid take because it's a classified review with only a short uh, discussion and some backgrounding to journalists. Um, and I think that's a lost opportunity. Part of a Strategic review is an opportunity to signal uh, both to adversaries, but also most importantly, to your allies and partners where you plan to make investments. And since they're leaking, you know, their background leaking is that, you know, there's a, you know, there's a continued effort to um, strengthen our position in the Pacific. It would have been good to have some specific examples released that get right at that. Um, and so having a classified document 
doesn't have the same effect as the unclassified. And if you think back to 2004, we had a very effective um, strategic posture review come out then uh, that was open for people to review and see. Um, I do like the indications they're giving about continuing to concentrate on the Pacific. The real devil in the details will come out over the next one to two years, and we'll see them in these ways. We'll see them in service, strategic postures, which tend to be unclassified because they're movements of of uh, units that involve families, so they have you can't keep this sort of thing classified about ships or submarines or aircraft or uh, ground-based units. Additionally, um, I think the other uh, thing that we'll see is the negotiations for access rights with allies and partners, whether it's Australia, where there's a lot of opportunity, um, continuing to work the Philippines, particularly after the election cycle there, and in the compact states and the um, and what we do in the Marianas in Guam, so I've been Trinitarian area. Uh, I tell you, there's one thing I'm always looking for, and that's the opportunity to go, you know, eventually up to six submarines in Guam. Having submarines forward is the most important statement we can do, both to our, our allies and partners, but most importantly to China. So it'd be nice if we began to, you know, reveal the deck of cards on that a little earlier than one to two years from now. Uh, and I, I should point out, right, you are a senior advisor uh, now to the Cyrus Day Solarium Commission. And I should say that you're the senior director of the Center uh, on, on uh, Cyber and Technology Innovation and FDD, which I should have been a little bit more uh, uh, clear uh, about. Um, and, and you were uh, J5, uh, J3 and, and J5 in Indo-Pacific Command. Um, Patrick, your, your sense on this and what you know, and, and there is a lot of discussion about the administrations or where the administration is falling in terms of its national defense strategy uh, to to some. It's weaker than the last administrations, um, whereas for others, it's it's an actually a more pragmatic uh, strategy uh, and one that that brings many different arms of uh, uh, national power. Uh, to bear. Shinzo Abe, uh, the former uh, Japanese prime minister, had some pointed comments uh, about China. Walk us through your sense on the Global Force Posture Review, how you think that's going to tie into the National Defense Review, and what Shinzo Abe had to say, uh, which, which suggests that China's problem may be worse in some respects. Right, There are other ways of deterring China aside from purely military power. Well, Vago, if you're in Beijing and you're looking at the Global Posture Review, you are scratching your head wondering what are those Americans up to, because there is very little new announced. That's partly because what is new has already been announced early this year, including at the uh, September Osman uh, with the Australians about uh, airfield and logistics and munitions storage upgrades in Australia and Guam and a rotational force uh, for air forces in Australia, as well as the AUKUS, the, the Australian, UK, US uh, sub and tech deal. Um, but um, that said, they are talking about a disciplining framework. I mean, this is Dr. Mara Carlin explaining, uh, you know, the acting deputy undersecretary of defense for policy, a very bright uh, official, uh, but explaining this disciplinary framework is one of the key achievements of the at least unclassified part of the, the global posture review, because going forward, every decision about readiness, modernization, each theater, every combatant commander is going to have to go through this disciplining framework. And that means uh, if Indo-Pacific is really the theater of priority, as they state, and if China is really the pacing uh, threat uh, and challenge, as the Secretary of Defense says, um, that means more and more decisions over the coming months and years in the Biden administration will uh, err toward uh, strengthening our posture in the Indo-Pacific. At least that's the assumption. 
we'll see. Um, other comments in the region, very important this week. Uh, you had, uh, yes, the prime minister uh, provoking the Chinese, uh, talking about uh, an economic suicide uh, if China uses force against Taiwan and declaring that a Taiwan emergency is a Japan emergency and it's a US-Japan emergency. Um, that, of course, uh, led to the ire of the, the Chinese. They said, this is our sacred territory. Uh, there'll be responses if you uh, don't change your course, uh, Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Abe. Um, and um, the Central Military Commission Vice Chair, General Zhang Yuzha, uh, wrote a long description about intelligentized warfare and the whole technology priority under Xi Jinping. It's a very important piece of writing uh, coming in advance of the 20th Party Congress this next year, uh, where clearly she is uh, accelerating the high technology competition with the United States. Um, Kurt Campbell, speaking at the Lowy Institute conference in, in Australia this week, also had some pointed words about China talking about the um, dramatic economic warfare that uh, China directed against Australia and said that it failed to bring Australia to its knees. And in fact, uh, Australia is uh, bringing China around to re-engagement on its terms. And that, of course, provoked uh, further outrage in Beijing. Those are some of the highlights about China. One other important speech, highly worth uh, reading out of the IISS was the MI6 uh, chief, uh, Richard Moore's speech, uh, an unusual public speech talking about China almost as their pacing threat uh, across the intelligence and security communities and talking about uh, especially the technology competition, a very important uh, uh, commentary. He also did a great BBC interview that's worth listening to. Your, your sense on the Global Force Posture uh, Review because you wrote about it in The Hill this week. I was very disappointed with it. Uh, you know, uh, Mara Carlin is a very capable person, uh, but she obviously wasn't the only one working on this. And, and to me, the, the, having all these agencies involved as they were, uh, having all the different parts of DOD involved as they were, uh, I was very disappointed. I think Patrick put his finger on it. There really was very little that was new. And the timing is strange because they, they what was said publicly was that somehow this posture review was going to quote unquote inform the next national defense strategy. So actually it was working off of an interim strategy that may or may not change. And it's the strategy that should de determine and drive the posture. So it's not only Beijing that may be scratching its head. Uh, I think a lot of others may be wondering as well, what exactly is new? What exactly is different? Now, one thing of course that was talked about, uh, although again, in generalities was building up infrastructure and they did talk about Guam. But beyond that, uh, we have no sense of whether additional forces are going to come to the region. There was very little said about the Middle East, so we don't know if anything is going to come from the Middle East to that re region. Um, there was talk of cooperation with allies to advance initiatives. And again, I'm quoting here, but we don't know where that'll lead. Uh, we don't know how successful that'll be. Um, there, as Patrick said, yes, we, we have arrangements with Australia, but there's nothing new there. In fact, most of the things that were talked about were already announced by the Secretary of Defense. For example, in Europe, they're no longer going to keep the 25,000 active duty cap, force cap in Germany. Well, big deal. They announced that already. In any event, that's not adding forces to get Putin's attention. That's simply not reducing them. And the same thing about turning over some military sites. 
that were supposed to be transferred. Well, they're not going to be transferred. That doesn't necessarily get Putin's attention. All we know from the uh, review is that they're going to add 500 people. Well, considering there's over 100,000 that are facing Ukraine right now, I'm not sure that's going to change very much for the Russian president. So I guess what I'm saying is we just don't really have a handle on what they're going to do. The timing seems odd. And the, and the risk you run is that if everybody's scratching their head when you finally do come out with a new defense review, people are going to say, well, is that really the last word? So I'm very concerned about this. And uh, again, I, I think that, uh, you know, Mara Carlin is very talented and she gave a press conference and handled a lot of difficult questions well. But the fundamental problem is, is with the, the timing, which of course wasn't hers, and with the lack of real new content. And and uh, right. I mean, the news hook was that the president had signed off on uh, on the global force posture review. Uh, so uh, that's one of the reasons why uh, they were uh, discussing it. Michael, I know that you've been up to your ears in 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 sort of bigger whether the government shuts down and what happens to the NDAA and all of that. But what are lawmakers up there uh, saying about the global po- force posture review and you know, the the reality that the, you know, defense review is being briefed out to people or at least being discussed uh, in an off the record uh, nature. I think everybody deserves a lot of credit for being disciplined, but we're getting uh, certainly the broad strokes of the strategy. What what are lawmakers saying to you when you talk to them about all of this? Uh, in all honesty, I, I've spent a lot of time with lawmakers this week and I will again tonight and with staff and the subject hasn't come up once. Um, you know, everybody seems to be uh, obsessed with uh, getting the NDA passed, what's happened with the CR and a possible shutdown. And then, of course, you know, some of the disarray we've seen and in the infighting going on in the Republican conference uh, between uh, Nancy Mason, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and how that's, you know, poisoned the well. And same with the, you know, the breakdown in camaraderie amongst uh, between the Republicans and Democrats and the wheels coming off the system. Uh, but, you know, which really detracts from the substantive discussions like this that they, that they should be having. But uh, this has not come up in a single conversation I've had in the last two weeks. Wow. Um, I, I, I just want to go to you, uh, Patrick. Patrick, do you have a counterpoint uh, to uh, to what, you know, sort of Dove's indictment? Uh, and then, Mark, want to want to get your thoughts as well before before we shift gears. Go ahead, Patrick. Well, I mean, the counterpoint is that, uh, as Mark Montgomery suggested, a lot of this is classified. And uh, Mark Carlin said as much during her briefing uh, this week that um, it's necessarily classified and we don't want to we don't want to divulge some of the moves we're making. So we'll have to take that for what it's worth. In addition, um, some of the announcements may be awaiting future documents and meetings. So the national defense strategy that will be issued early next year, the nuclear posture review that we're waiting for, the missile defense review. Um, there's separate uh, working groups on space and cyberspace. All of these could lead to individual announcements that might be uh, separate, uh, important uh, augmentation of, uh, of relations. But we'll see about whether this really shifts the force posture. I think those looking critically over the decades at the pivot to Asia Pacific, they're saying there's not a lot new here. And in fact, there was a, a great quote from a senior official unnamed in the Wall Street Journal um, writing about the Global Posture Review saying, we looked at the posture and it was we, we thought it was about right. Um, well, um, that doesn't suggest that we're shifting a lot of resources toward the Indo-Pacific or we have the ability to shift many resources. So um, I'm all for the administration's focus on China and Indo-Pacific, but uh, there is not a lot new that we're working with. We're working mostly with what Mark Carlin did 
uh, underscore, which was this incredible network of allies and partners. Well, so we're leaning very heavily on our friends. Um, and I, I want to point out one of the things which I do uh, like uh, that that you uh, framed well is an, an acknowledgement uh, that the Indo-Pacific commander is the most important uh, commander that we have. That's not putting anybody else down, but Lung Aquilino and his team have got the absolute toughest job right now uh, from a deterrence standpoint, as well as building up capabilities and engaging with allies and partners and figuring out those gaps and seams, obviously, that the Chinese are going to ex exploit. And yet anybody who's talked to any Indo-Pacific commander, especially off the record uh, for the last couple of decades, will acknowledge that sometimes within the system, they're sort of treated like everybody else was. And certainly during the war on, on terror, um, you know, CENTCOM was the one getting primary uh, resources. And, and yet there are some very mundane things, Mark, not to scrape off old wounds, right? You know, Rat Willard was asking for uh, a surface-to-surface anti-ship missile and couldn't get it. And finally, you know, like a decade later, Phil Davidson got the air-launched version for which he was very happy about, but still didn't have the anti-ship. You know what I mean? Waiting for for peers. From from your standpoint, I mean, is there is there anything positive in the way that this is being structured from your standpoint that at least gives a little bit more oomph uh, to, to Lung and his team? Well, first, I, I agree uh, with what Dove said about allies and partners being very important. Uh, and uh, look, you know, that's words, though. And I'll tell you, we haven't treated all our allies and partners that well over the last four months. So I think they're going to have to prove themselves here. Uh, again, the, the classification is an issue, I think. And I'm not blaming this administration. I think all administrations tend to overclassify. The constituent parts of this um, force posture are going to be unclassified. And as they, you know, reveal themselves, I think we'll see if there is any significant changes. I suspect there will be, but they don't have to be exciting. You know, an extra submarine in Guam, that'd be a little exciting, but it's a, a U.S. territory. Um, so m mundane things like deployable air base sets that are consistent with the, uh, the agile combat uh, employment tactic that the Air Force wants to use and the stowage of more long-range anti-ship cruise missiles, LRASMs, that uh, come from the Rat Willard, Phil Davidson request that you uh, avert to. Um, those kind of uh, uh, mundane, but really important uh, logistical and, uh, and stowage requirements, you know, they, they will have an impact. And, and the one, the country that will most see that is China, who will study it the most is China. So those kind of moves, while not exciting, will have a deterrent effect on China. And then if deterrence fails, give us the ability to have a war winning impact uh, with, with those systems. So I, I do expect we'll see things over the next uh, one to two to three years that show the commitment of this administration to a prioritization of the Pacific and the challenge of China. Um, I, I want to uh, quickly uh, get uh, Dove uh, your take uh, both on, and I, and I want to go around the horn on what your expectations are. Obviously there will be a lot of messaging. Uh, Jack Reed, um, Adam Smith uh, and a lot of, you know, Lindsey Graham and a lot of other lawmakers uh, will be uh, at the Reagan Forum, the entire U.S. military leadership. But uh, Dove, I want to first get your sense, Russia, Ukraine, uh, how concerned are you? We're keeping our fingers on the pulse of that. And Naftali Bennett, the Israeli prime minister, uh, had a very stern conversation, uh, I think is probably the most charitable way to put it, with Antony Blinken, uh, the U.S. Secretary of State. Uh, effectively calling on the Iran nuclear negotiations to be ended, uh, given the degree uh, of uh, purification of, of Iranian 
uh, your uh, uh, visible product. So, you know, give us your sense on on both of those, and then we'll go around the horn on what folks expect on uh, to hear uh, during the forum this weekend. Well, on Ukraine, I mean, it's clear that the Russians are building up far beyond simply an exercise. Uh, and a lot of analysts are really worried that in this case, they're going to bite off quite openly, not with little green men, uh, not just uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, which are already uh, problem children for uh, the, the government in Kyiv, but uh, more, more of uh, Eastern Ukraine, which is Russia, Russian speaking. And then the question becomes, how does the West react? How does the United States react? This brings me back to the global posture. Because if something like this happens over the next year or two, uh, or even sooner, then once again, we will talk the talk about the Pacific, but we won't walk the walk because we're now going to focus back again on Europe. Um, so, you know, these future reviews uh, may not turn out to be what we are assuming they will be based on the interim review. Interim literally means interim, which is why I had a difficulty with the posture review. Um, we're doing some things. We're clearly emphasizing the importance of China, but that doesn't necessarily mean we'll change very much. Uh, I, I really do worry about what Putin is, is up to in Ukraine. Uh, he's made a major speech essentially saying we and, the Ukraine, and Ukraine are one. Ukraine is, Ukraine is to Russia what Taiwan is to China. The difference being that uh, in the case of Ukraine, it is the, they're central to their history. And he's gotten away with Georgia. He's gotten away with Crimea. So he's got an incentive to try to get away with more. I'm very worried about that. On Bennett, uh, look, the Israelis know very well that their defenses are such to really make it very difficult for Iran to penetrate while they could respond uh, and essentially wipe out Iran if they wanted to. Raisi, the president of Iran, wants to become supreme leader. Is he likely to take a risk like that? Probably not, but he's also probably not going to want to make a deal because if there's a deal, you can see John Kerry and a lot of others who negotiated the previous deal, uh, Bob Malley and, and uh, Wendy Sherman, I mean, I could go on, who will be applauding and saying, thank God we got the deal. That's not going to help Raisi inside Iran with his hardliners. So I suspect you're not going to see a deal. Uh, we will continue to talk. Uh, you know, Bennett has to say what he has to say to keep his right wing happy. But at the end of the day, I don't see a deal. Um, let's uh, go uh, quickly around the horn. Uh, and Dov, uh, I also want to get your uh, sense on uh, the Reagan Institute's fascinating survey on, on military trends, I thought, or, or how the military is perceived by uh, society, uh, where some of those numbers were declining. Uh, and, and we're going to be talking to Roger, uh, obviously, next week about it. Um, Roger joined us uh, last year uh, to discuss uh, some of those survey results uh, as well. Uh, Let's quickly go around the horn, uh, Michael, Mark, Patrick, and then Dove. What do you guys expect to hear at the Reagan Forum uh, this weekend? You know, this will be the first year that I'm missing the Reagan Forum. I'm disappointed to miss it. But I think, um, you know, Roger and his team put together an incredible uh, group of people. And I looked at the list of the people who are going to be out there this year. And it's, again, an amazing list. But and a lot of congressmen are going to be there and, and senators. And uh, look, uh, I think we're going to hear, you know, obviously, you know, a lot of talk about the China threat, uh, some degree, you know, the Russia threat, where we're falling behind, things that we need to do. But I, I would encourage the people out there to, 
you know, reiterate with the members of Congress there that a lot of that rings hollow as long as we're under a CR. Uh, you know, a CR means China wins. It means that, you know, we are, we're locked in place. We can't make the advances that we need to make. We can't spend the money we need to spend. And a lot of Republicans are thinking that we need the CR for the next two years. I've had that conversation today on the Hill with Republicans. Um, there was a, a Republican leader quoted in Politico early this morning saying that anybody who doesn't support CRs for the next two years is foolish. I mean, there's a lack of understanding that the military cannot make any progress and that we will end up with almost $40 billion less in defense spending if we have a CR versus whether we pass uh, the budget that looks like it would come out, out of committee. So I think those points need to be driven home very hard to those members. They come back and work with their colleagues to figure out how to get to yes instead of how to get to no. Yeah, but it's a it's a very zero sum environment, uh, Michael, unfortunately. Right. And so this is like, well, we're going to deal a defeat to the administration uh, that's you know led to the BCA. I mean, again, I mean, these are just repeated self-inflicted gunshot wounds. It's solely self-inflicted. But I think what they need to understand is if they're delivering a defeat to the administration is also delivering a defeat to our nation on this. And they really have to separate the two. And national security has been considered the last bastion of bipartisanship. And we can't let that fail. But but right. I mean, but the people who are in that room sort of get that right. Mike Gallagher gets it. I think Lindsey Graham, for all the criticism made of him, I think he ultimately gets that as well, uh, as as does Mike Rogers, who's going to be out there and Adam Smith and the like. Right. I mean, I think it's other members that are the heart of the problem. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So they need to spend time with those members to inform and educate them and work with their leadership uh, to figure out how they're going to get this done. Mark, we've, we've seen this before where there's a will is a way. I, 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 from your mouth to God's ears, uh, as, as they say on this uh, Hanukkah uh, week. Uh, Mark, uh, give, us, uh, give, us, give us your sense, Patrick, and then Dove. So, sure. First, I have to say that, you know, when, in fairness to the Republicans, when the Democrats are jamming through, you know, some nearly $2 trillion in reconciliation in one of the chambers, you, you, can, you know, you can see that, you know, that there is a little, there's a lot of wrong-footedness and appropriations going on right now on both sides of the aisle. And I, I don't stick up for one or the other, but I, I don't think this is a single-party problem, Vago. All right, on to what I'll see here. I'm excited about the cyber panel they put together. It's got, uh, you know, Mike Gallagher's on there. He's been talking a lot about from Congress point of view, but also he's been writing and thinking a lot about Taiwan. And I think, you know, that's one of those areas where if you take the Reagan Institute's recent polling, you know, the th what I took from it was the American people are pretty smart. They see the threat from China as the, the most serious one, and they see that cyber attacks are the, one of the most significant threat acts, uh, you know, uh, threat um, uh, lanes coming at us. And when you bring those together, China and cyber, thinking about how we deal with, with a, uh, a contingency or a growing crisis in Taiwan and the kind of cyber uh, malicious activity we'll see going on, um, I think this is a great opportunity, um, you know, for, for that panel. To really get into it. it's got it's got the um, you know you, you have Paul Nakasone, Mike Gilday, you have some really smart people on this issue who can, who can probably frame both China and cyber challenges. And uh, you know a, a shout out to the CNO. He was Tenth Fleet Commander um, and and somebody intimately familiar with the topics. Uh, Patrick, just on uh, Mark Montgomery's last point, it's no uh, mystery then that the Taiwan will be represented at the upcoming summit for democracy. Um, which is a summit level, a virtual meeting on the 9th and 10th of December by the cyber czar of Taiwan, um, which will not be represented by Tsai Ing-wen. So an interesting uh, emphasis on exactly what Mark Montgomery is talking about. How do you deter the Chinese in the short term over Taiwan? And all do you, how do you fight them in, in cyberspace and control that uh, domain? 
I think the challenge for the Secretary of Defense, at least at, uh, at the Reagan Forum, is convincing uh, the audience that we are well poised to deter uh, aggression from not just China, but from Russia, from North Korea, from Iran, and, and even terrorism uh, post-Afghanistan, uh, and that we're still able to also compete in what we thought was a long-term technological competition. It's turning into a rather short-term uh, competition in the sense that we're urgently needing to do things now um, before we fall further behind or fall behind uh, in some areas. Um, you know, Secretary of Defense is just coming from the 53rd Security Consultative Meeting in Seoul, successful uh, alliance uh, meeting, um, to be sure. Uh, they're going to update the strategic planning guidance on how to deter and defend against, if necessary, North Korean aggression. Kim Jong-un's now in the harness for 10 years uh, this month. It's been since he, he rose to power. Uh, and there's a lot of concern that we may not be ready. And, and so they wrote the OPLAN rewrote it back in 2010 after the lethal uses of force from North Korea. They're going to have to do that again. So it's these kind of issues. And then Russia on the border of Ukraine, it may be that Putin is simply looking for blocking European expansion and bargaining power versus Biden and, and the Europeans. Uh, but at the same time, Russia has real capability and they play by Kremlin rules uh, and, and are capable of just about anything. So we have to worry about the short-term uh, aggression. And yet we're still trying to put, keep China as the, the main pacing threat that we can keep up with and keep ahead of. Uh, Dove, uh, last word. And if you want to talk about the importance of this survey, um, you and I have talked about what happens uh, when the military starts to become less popular, right? I mean, when the shooting was going on all time high, uh, a lot of public support, whereas uh, in the wake of uh, what we, uh, you know, certainly the demonstrations uh, last year, there was uh, a little bit of a diminution, uh, which Roger discussed in last year's survey, uh, right? Uh, but w walk us through what you broadly expect and finish us off on the uh, sure. Well, on, well on the first, survey. I think uh, Roger told me that he, you know, he really, uh, first time he's ever uh, had this, the Secretary of Defense is going to be hosting all the members, uh, all the members of Congress and senators for uh, a, a breakfast, not really a breakfast, but a morning coffee on Saturday. Uh, it's the first time it's happened, and that gives uh, Secretary Austin a real opportunity to stress what he really considers to be most important, which obviously, as Mike Hurston pointed out, is not having a very long CR and, and you know, uh, getting what we need to stay ahead of the Chinese. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what Lung Aquilino says on his panel. Uh, about Taiwan, uh, and then uh, how much people will be talking about Ukraine. Uh, on the, uh, and finally, the Middle East. Remember, Austin was just at the Manama conference the other week as well. Right. Um, and so where does the Middle East fit into all of this? Uh, there's, there's lots that he, he has a huge opportunity. You know, he's going to have about 40 members of Congress there, including senators. Uh, obviously, there's a lot more bipartisanship among that crowd than the rest of Congress, but still, this is a significant audience, and he's got an opportunity to talk through all of these issues. On the popularity of the military, it, there seems to be some kind of decline. I think, uh, as you say, uh, Vago, a lot of it has to do with what's gone on in the past year. But I'm worried, and I think uh, Roger may, may share this view. I can't really speak for him, but uh, this is another reflection of the growing isolationism of this country. Um, that's why the Republicans have done 180 and don't really care about spending on defense as much. Uh, you've got the left wing of the Democratic Party that is totally in agreement with the Republicans on this issue. Uh, 
I, I really worry that this is simply yet another symptom of something far deeper. And uh, uh, the administration has to figure out how to turn this around. Uh, absolutely uh, fascinating. And, and uh, we're looking to have uh, actually Mike O'Hanlon of uh, the Brookings Institution uh, join us soon as well to talk about how to combat extremism because some of these uh, polls, unfortunately, because of what we saw and what we saw in the wake of January 6th, are, are also coming together, uh, unfortunately, for, for some in, uh, in troubling uh, ways. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it and look forward to having you back on again next week uh, to give us an after action uh, of what we hope to be a very action-packed uh, Reagan Forum. Everybody, thanks so much for joining us. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.